From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. When Russia started its invasion of Ukraine in February, my guest this week, Michael Kimmich, was watching the conflict unfold from Washington, D.C. He oversaw the Russia-Ukraine portfolio from 2014 to early 2017 for the United States State Department. He's now a professor at Catholic University. We talk about Russia's ambitions for the war, possible outcomes, and more. It's Wednesday, April 6th, 2022, and this is News Nerds. Michael Kimmage is a professor at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. From 2014 to early 2017, he managed the Russia-Ukraine portfolio in the U.S. State Department. He's also a fellow at, of the German Marshall Fund. He's with us now. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Ezra. So uh, when you were in the State Department, what did U.S. policy regarding Russia-Ukraine look like? Well, at the, in those years, so we're talking about 2014 to, to 2016, uh, there were two primary issues. The first was the annexation of Crimea, which happened shortly after February 2014. Uh, and that was regarded by the United States government as illegal. Uh, and then secondly, there was a slow rolling invasion of eastern Ukraine uh, across the spring and summer of 2014, uh, where um, you know, Russia acquired uh, a fair amount of territory uh, and uh, established uh, what the U.S. government regarded as artificial republics on this territory, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. They've been in the news recently. Uh, and so the goal of U.S. policy in light of the annexation and the invasion was to restore Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Uh, and the method that was chosen primarily was one of sanctioning Russia. So there was uh, a whole range of uh, economic sanctions that was placed on Russia, both in 2014 and 2015. This was done in partnership with the European Union, so with European allies and partners uh, of the United States. Uh, and that was essentially the story of 2014, 2015, uh, and 2016. The goal was clear. Uh, the method was pretty clear as well. Uh, but I suppose it's worth pointing out that the goal was never reached uh, in 2016 and hasn't been reached since, as, as we all well know. You were under uh, President Obama in, in those years, and now President Biden is in office. How are you reacting to Biden's response to the war, and, and do you think it's enough? Well, I think it's a long and complicated question in some ways. I think we do have to go back to the very first months when Biden was uh, in office, uh, you know, the uh, spring and summer of 2021. Uh, and I think it's fair to be critical of Biden in those months. He was looking for guardrails in the relationship, for a balancing of the relationship between the U.S. Uh, and Russia. Uh, and he underappreciated how much of a threat Russia would become uh, in precisely this space. You could say that he wasted time. I don't think he did anything really terrible in those months, but he wasted a certain amount of time. I would say since then, since the military buildup of the fall of 2021, uh, Biden has gotten the whole story more or less right. Uh, and this is a question of both what he's done and what he hasn't done. Uh, what he's done is building upon policies that go back to the Trump administration, uh, is to provide a lot of military assistance to Ukraine that has been essential in the war effort. Once the war began, Biden, together again with European partners and allies, much as I was speaking of a moment ago in 2014, put together a very robust sanctions package, much more robust than it was 
in 2014. And uh, the coalition that has been established includes countries in Europe, but also Japan, South Korea, Australia, uh, New Zealand. So it's a global coalition that's working with sanctions uh, and with military assistance to Ukraine for the same goals that I was speaking of earlier uh, of restoring Ukraine to its territorial integrity uh, and sovereignty. Finally, I would say about Biden, and I agree with this, other people don't agree with this, I think by saying that this is not a fight that directly involves the NATO alliance, uh, I think he's set a clear limit, uh, and that's been helpful. It's been helpful for messaging to Russia and also for messaging to Ukraine, that it's not unconditional support and it's not a direct war uh, or a war in which the U.S. will be directly involved. Uh, and that to me is the right policy. So I think on the details, on the margins, Biden can certainly be doing more. In the big picture sense, I think he's gotten the situation just about right. Why is this invasion getting so much more attention than past invasions uh, by Russia that you were just talking about? Right, and we could throw into this question, if you like, you know, why is it getting more attention than say the war in Yemen? There's been an ongoing civil war uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia, it's, the, the war in Ukraine is not the only war uh, happening at the moment, but it is, as you suggest, getting enormous amounts of, uh, of media attention. Uh, part of this has to do with the media itself, uh, and there's a density of media in and around uh, Ukraine. Some of that is US media, some of that is European media. It's just a, a landscape in which there's a lot of media assets. That's not the most persuasive and important answer to the question, but it's part of uh, an answer. Uh, part of it is, of course, the scale of the war itself. So this is the biggest war to take place on European soil in terms of the soldiers involved, in terms of the territorial ambitions, in terms of the suffering and the destruction. It's the biggest war to take place on European soil since 1945. So that's clearly a very, very important story uh, and deserves to be covered very extensively. There are two other ways in which this needs a lot of close attention. Uh, maybe we could say that these other conflicts in the world, Yemen and Ethiopia, need more attention, but I think Ukraine deserves the attention it's getting for the following two reasons. There's the potential that the war could spill over into other parts of, uh, of Europe. And we know from especially the story of the First World War, it begins in 1914 as a conflict between Austria, Austria-Hungary, and Serbia. It's a, a local regional conflict, but within a couple of months, even a couple of weeks, uh, the First World War involved Russia, it involved Germany, it involved France, it involved Britain, and really became a global world war. I'm not predicting that in the case of Ukraine, but there's the potential that other countries could get drawn into the conflict, in which case it wouldn't just be a war between Ukraine and Russia, but could be something of a regional or perhaps even uh, a world war. And then finally, there is, because you have a nuclear power on the part of Russia involved, and on the other side of the conflict, not directly in the conflict, but supporting the other side is the United States, you have the kinds of things that we worried about during the Cold War, that this could escalate into uh, something larger than a conventional military conflict and that the nuclear dimension could become thinkable. Uh, if, that's a case, if that's the case, of course, it affects all of us, whether one is in the West Coast of the United States or on the East Coast of the United States or really anywhere, that nuclear component is really uh, is really scary. So I think for all of those reasons, this is just a major political event, it's a major historical event, and a major media event. So I've been asking this, and I, I, don't, I don't have like a clear answer, uh, but why did Russia invade Ukraine? It, was it because of NATO? Was it because of they think that it, you know, Ukraine is rightfully theirs because it was part of the Soviet Union? What is, why? I mean, why? 
Right. It's a crucial question. And we have to acknowledge at the beginning that we don't have a lot of good evidence. In other words, we don't have the kinds of documents or records um, of conversations in the Kremlin that could really get us to answer this question. So <laughs> when we're speculating, we have to say that we're speculating. So let me speculate along two lines of uh, two lines of analysis. I don't think that NATO is fundamental uh, uh, to the conflict. I think looking at the war from a Russian point of view, which is necessary for understanding its origins, I think it begins back in 2014 when Russia thought Ukraine was moving toward Europe, moving in a westward direction. Uh, and what Russia really didn't like about that setup or arrangement was a growing military relationship between Ukraine and the United States. This touches on some questions of national security that are rational and reasonable uh, for Russia, but it also touches uh, on questions of civilization, history, culture, uh, that result in a reading of Ukraine on the part of many Russians, uh, maybe not a majority, but many Russians who see Ukraine as indelibly a part uh, of Russia. Uh, and so there's a security component, but there's also a sense that Ukraine is ours in some loose sense, either directly ours as a colony might be, uh, or ours in the sense that Russia and Ukraine uh, are inseparable. And these things mix up together uh, into a rationale on the Russian side for, uh, for military action uh, in Ukraine. Too close to the West, too much American influence, too much of a military connection to the wrong part of the world. Uh, and we need to write the balance, one might say, from a Russian perspective, uh, through war and through military force. I think you have to add to that, though, a second line of analysis, which is just the character or even the psychology or the mind mood uh, of Vladimir Putin at the moment. He's now been in power for about 20 years, 22 years. Uh, he's 69 years old. Uh, he seems to have had a bad experience of the pandemic. I think to a degree we can all relate to that. Uh, he looks to be isolated. He's brooding, it seems, over his historical legacy. Uh, and he's, ar he's arrived at a radical position when it comes to Ukraine, a radical and risk-taking position, uh, which doesn't follow from 2014, and which doesn't follow from uh, some of the political and cultural questions I've been uh, describing. It really follows from uh, a very, very extreme uh, understanding or analysis of Putin uh, of the situation that he's in. Putin up until this point has been relatively cautious. Uh, he seems to have thrown that to the wind. Uh, and it's really anybody's guess as to why that's the case, but I don't think that the war makes sense without factoring in some change in attitude, some change in mindset uh, in the character of, uh, of Vladimir Putin. So there's the long-term answer, there's the short-term answer, and they, in a way, all revolve around the figure of Putin. Do you think that Putin's regime, which has, you know, as you've been saying, going on for many, many years, far longer than any U.S. leaders have been in power, do you think that's in jeopardy, or do you feel that his regime will go on as long as he can, uh, you know, physically be a leader? Um, I think it's, it's both, if it's possible to give that answer to your, uh, to your question. I think that uh, it will not be overthrown soon, uh, and it won't crash down soon either for military or for uh, economic reasons. Uh, it's a very, very large country. Uh, and it can absorb in the short term some of the shocks that the war, that the war will bring uh, that the war will bring to Russia. It's also the case. There's been some reporting in the New York Times story today about how the war is relatively popular in Russia. That's 
you know, not easy to calibrate because that may, may stem from propaganda and it may stem from fears that Russians have now about speaking out uh, against the war. But I don't doubt that it's true uh, up to a point. Uh, wars usually begin, especially when it's one country that starts them, they usually begin uh, as fairly popular ventures, this kind of optimism about what the war uh, can bring. And I think that that's still uh, the state of mind uh, in Russia. Uh, and I think Putin is going to be a difficult figure in general uh, to overthrow. There's no obvious alternative. Uh, there's no real formal opposition movement to speak of. And it's hard for me to imagine a figure in the Kremlin having the courage to go uh, directly against Putin, although it, 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 could, uh, it could happen. I think what's more likely, to, though, to go back to the first part of your question, uh, is that the war is going to sap effectiveness uh, and strength over the Russian, from the Russian government. And this will happen over time, over months and perhaps uh, over years. There's the cost that the sanctions will bring. There's the loss of life that the war uh, involves. There's the way in which the government lied about the true nature of the war, continues to lie about the true nature of the war. That's not, when you look back historically, great news for governments that are trying to, uh, trying to wage wars. There's a certain futility to this war, I'm looking at it from the Russian side. It's, it's more than futile, it's a criminal and evil war from a Ukrainian perspective, but there's a certain futility to the war from the Russian side. So if it would go very well, if there would be no costs, then perhaps it could be sustained or brought to a conclusion. If not, and the war is not going well for Russia, if not, uh, popularity is going to fall away and then Putin will become very, very vulnerable because in kind of poker terms, he's taken all the chips of his presidency and he's bet them on this war. Uh, and in that sense, if he loses, he has the potential to lose everything. Uh, what do you think was the Russian military's goal as they went into Ukraine in February? Was it to get gain more land, like, uh, like the Donbass region that they gained in 2014? Or was it to install a new leader and totally take over the country and claim it for Russia? Right. It was much closer to the, much closer to the latter. The stated goals of the war uh, were to ensure the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. These were these statelets that were created in 2014 artificially by Russian military uh, power, uh, and they were you know, sort of partially controlled. These regions and the stated aims of the war were to put these regions under the full control. Uh, of Russia. They may be returning to those aims at the moment as they recalibrate their military venture, but when they began, they made a lunge at the capital city of Kiev, uh, bombed many cities uh, across the country, including in the western parts uh, of the country. Uh, and I think we can piece together their war plans pretty coherently, uh, probably not perfectly, but pretty coherently. And they expected the government to fall in a way to run away, to sort of uh, implode uh, because of the intimidating force gathered uh, against them. Uh, and if you look on paper, Russia's military is vastly superior to the military of Ukraine. So it's a very scary thing to be invaded by a, a country of that size, you know, the biggest conventional military uh, in Europe. Uh, and the Russian reading was that they could generate enough fear to get that outcome. You have to add to that a sort of arrogant uh, idea that Ukraine is not a real country, that it's propped up by the United States and other outside powers, that its government is illegitimate, uh, that it's a kind of cabal who runs uh, the country. And all it needed was a little push, a little shove, and the whole thing would fall apart. So I think that, that was the conviction going in, that the war would be quick, that it would be effective. 
Uh, I don't think the plan was for a long-term occupation. I think the idea was either to install a puppet who could be used to control the country in its entirety, or to partition the country in some form uh, or fashion, in which case you would have a kind of Russian-leading uh, zone with approved leadership uh, on the Russian side and some uh, maybe other kind of entity on the other side of the country, on the Western side uh, of the country. I don't think that Russia has completely given up on that ambition of partitioning the country and installing a sympathetic leader, but they certainly have to recognize that they will not be able to put in a puppet uh, and control 100% of Ukrainian territory. That's totally beyond their means. Considering all of what we've just talked about, um, and considering that the Russian military is, is, is um, you know, it's getting lots of pushback from the Ukrainians, um, who do you think will win the war? I think nobody will win the war. I, I think it's one of these situations where, and maybe this is the definition of what a tragedy truly is, uh, that every party, and I don't just have Ukraine and Russia in mind, will lose uh, this war. Uh, the United States will lose in the sense of having to expend resources uh, on uh, an unnecessary uh, and uh, an evil conflict. It's a good thing to do uh, to push against Russia uh, in Ukraine, but it will consume uh, a lot of American resources. E Europe will lose in a different sense by being less secure uh, because of this, by having such a terrible and large-scale conflict uh, in the center of Europe, which is really where Ukraine uh, happens to fall. The countries of North Africa and the Middle East will lose because grain prices are going to rocket up. They have already. Uh, and there's some concern about drought uh, and, and hunger in parts of, uh, of East Africa uh, and North Africa. The war will cause uh, a great rise in inflation uh, at 7% at the moment in the United States. There are other causes as well, but the war is going to contribute to that. Uh, and that will slow down the global economy, will cut into economic growth, uh, and will contribute to uh, to inequality. So you could go on. I think there are many more ways in which the world uh, is going to emerge uh, a loser uh, from this uh, from this conflict. That's the tragic nature of the tragic scope of the war uh, of the war in Ukraine. I think Russia, to give you a somewhat you know, more precise answer to your question, Russia is destined to lose this war because they have set for themselves political objectives that I think are really unachievable. And if they winnow down those political objectives so much that they can achieve something on the battlefield, so let's say that instead of just the slice of eastern Ukraine that they've already taken, that they add another slice to that, uh, to that territory, it will be very hard on the Russian side to justify the loss of life, the expenditure of treasure, the sanctions, the isolation of Russia that's coming from the war. It will be very hard to justify that for the sake of just a little bit more territory uh, in Ukraine when the rest of the country is very embittered toward Russia. Uh, and now has a much stronger connection to, uh, to Europe and, uh, and the United States. So in the long term, I think Russia can only lose from this venture. It's a war that it's destined uh, to lose. Um, but I'm hard pressed to say in my imagination, although I would like to give you a different answer to the question, I'm hard pressed to say that Ukraine is destined to win. Perhaps it will. Perhaps the Russian military will fold. Perhaps Putin's leadership will collapse. Perhaps the whole thing will just unravel, in which case the Ukrainians will get their country back as they deserve to, uh, as they deserve to do, and they can declare themselves the unequivocal winners of this conflict. But my guess is that the military phase of the conflict will last for a long time. And what we see is that the military phase of the conflict is chewing up the country. You know, it's degrading its economy, it's generating internally displaced people, it's generating refugees, 
there's massive destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure. And until the war ends, it's going to be very hard to work on bringing that back and getting the kind of funding and investment that you would need to return the country to, uh, to normalcy. So let's think in very long-term arcs, maybe 30, 40, 50 year arcs. I think Ukraine will become stronger because of this. It will become more appropriate in that sense, it will win. Uh, Russia, I'm quite convinced on a similar time scale, time frame will, will, will lose. Uh, but in a kind of 10, 20 year time period, um, I, I think that the key factor in the war, the key story of the war is simply going to be the devastation that it, that it provokes. So you're saying that this will likely go on for years, like this will be a long oh, war? I believe so, yes. No, I think that, uh, again, barring a swift change in course in Russian politics, uh, I don't think that Putin can agree to losing the war. It's one of the dilemmas of being an autocrat, especially when you invest as much as Putin has in national pride and the military. A dilemma of that is that you cannot lose wars. Democracies can lose wars. It's not great for a sitting democratic president. Uh, but we see in the case of Joe Biden that he pulled out of Afghanistan in, in August. That was a decision that President Trump had made before him. But Biden was the one in office when it happened. It wasn't easy for Biden, but it hasn't you know, tanked his presidency. Uh, and you know, the U.S. will rebound from that in part because it is uh, a democracy. For Putin, the vanity, the ego, the connection of him with Russia uh, and the connection of Russia with the military, all of that makes it very, very hard for Putin to lose the war. So I think that he could just persist in fighting a war that no longer has any purpose uh, and that won't be good for Russia, you know, because he's obligated to, because he has to, because there's no real political alternative. And the dilemma of Ukraine, although you know this is up for grabs, this is negotiable, you see in the last 48 hours that Ukraine claimed, reclaimed considerable territory around Kiev and in the south around Kherson, there's, there's a counteroffensive at, at, at work now uh, that Ukraine, Ukraine is successfully prosecuting. But President Zelensky himself has said that he doesn't think he can remove all Russian soldiers from Ukrainian soil uh, just by the efforts of his military uh, alone. So he's acknowledging uh, longevity to this conflict uh, as well. Now, there's the diplomatic component. We can turn to that in a second, if you like. Uh, and I think that that has reasonable chances of succeeding. But again, not this month or next month, but probably over the course of a couple of years. Yeah, let's turn to the diplomatic, uh, that, that diplomatic uh, strategy in, in this war. You wrote an article for Foreign Affairs called, What if Russia makes a deal? Um, what is the likelihood of this? And how do you think this will happen? So it's, it's, we can start with the fundamentals, uh, that there's an incentive on both sides to make a deal. So Putin is going off the deep end. He's an autocrat. He can't afford to lose the war. But he's also canny and has been in the past um, fairly shrewd uh, in terms of ensuring his own survival uh, and serving Russian interests as he sees them. If he's retained that shrewdness, and I'm not sure he has, but if he has retained that shrewdness, he will see that coming to terms with Ukraine makes a lot of sense for Russia. Now, obviously, he would have to get concessions uh, uh, in return. He'd have to have something to show uh, his population uh, for the sake of winding down uh, the war. But if he can calibrate, this is really what diplomacy, statesmanship, politics is all about. If he can calibrate the relationship between ends and means. You can say, I have this you know, amount of firepower, I have this amount of military power, this is really what I can achieve in Ukraine. And if he can go no further than that, 
he can make that as an offer to the Ukrainians and see if they will uh, accept it. Um, he uh, would benefit greatly from doing so. I doubt that the sanctions would be lifted, but he could put an end to this terrible war. Uh, he could sort of regroup. He could try to reclaim some of the dignity of the Russian military, which has been much compromised by the uh, by the war, uh, and he could move his country uh, forward, which is going to be hard to do before it come uh, to an end. On the Ukrainian side, uh, it's no less difficult, really, but the incentive is also there because, you know, Zelensky uh, does not want to see his country destroyed. You know, he recognizes that uh, each week in which this war takes place is a week that takes power and energy from Ukrainian agriculture, from the Ukrainian economy, uh, that traumatizes especially younger people who are going to have a very hard time recovering uh, from this war, that pushes Ukrainians into Poland and other countries uh, into, into exile, uh, and that has resulted in enormous movements, migrations of, of people within the territory of Ukraine from east to west and uh, from the cities uh, that are under bombardment to, uh, to safer places. So he has a political reason to compromise, to, to, to end the war, military reason, but there's also in his case on his side, an ethical or humanitarian reason to come to uh, come to terms with Russia. Now, how exactly they do it, uh, in which way, on which terms, uh, is anybody's guess. It's going to be fiendishly difficult. Putin is not somebody that Zelensky can, uh, can trust. And Putin, at the same time, is not somebody who can bow down to, to, to Zelensky, uh, not in his political culture. And so it will be extremely difficult to thread the needle. But diplomacy works in general when you have this pressure this uh, incentive structure uh, that makes diplomacy uh, attractive. And you do have that in this case. And if they would be lucky, uh, they would say, we recognize this now, so let's just get to the finish line uh, in a couple of weeks as opposed to a couple of years. But that kind of luck is, is, is often hard to come by in negotiations. So, you know, I, I, I retain some optimism, uh, but it's pretty guarded at the same time. Well, Michael, thank you so much for talking to me. Of course, it's a pleasure. Michael Kimmage is a professor at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. From 2014 to early 2017, he managed the Russia-Ukraine portfolio for the State Department. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. I was your host, Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cowpies, and other extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM, community radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you're not in the Gallatin Valley, you can go to their website, kgvm.org, to listen. Please support us through our Patreon and PayPal accounts. That's how we support this show, through donations from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.